Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, so next week is our 100th episode. I can't believe it's come up so fast. So that means if you have any questions, for example, if you've been wondering who would cheat first in a marriage between Henry VIII and Isabella of France, you need to send me an email immediately. And that email, of course, is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And naturally, that means that next week will not be a regular episode, but rather is going to be the Q&A episode, and then we'll pick up our story the following week. All right, speaking of that story, let's get going. So the year is 586, and Chawlin is the leader of the men of Wessex. Wessex has been expanding their holdings to the north and west, and they've been growing in power substantially. Conversely, in the east are the men of Kent, under the leadership of Athelbert, who, we're told, has been ruling since he was eight years old. But the dates are a bit dodgy. And now Athelbert is 16 years old. Maybe. And he's growing in power. We know this because Kent is growing in wealth, and Athelbert is of sufficiently high status to be marrying the daughter of the king of Francia. Furthermore, he's a member of the Oiskengas, the ruling family of Kent, said to have been descended from Hengist himself. So something happened, which the scribes failed to tell us of, and that thing resulted in invasion. Athelbert and his men crossed into Wessex and fought with Chalin as well as Cutha, who was Chalin's brother. But it didn't go too well, because we're told that two of Athelbert's eldermen were slain, and then Athelbert himself was chased back into Kent. Now this is the first outbreak of war between two Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, so that's huge. It's also a demonstration of the power of the House of Wessex, if it happened. This is, of course, the Dark Ages, and we're hearing about this from chroniclers who were writing long after this battle took place. Furthermore, they were probably writing to please Alfred, who was, of course, of the House of Wessex. So talking about how his ancestor chased off this mighty king, this man who would become a Bretwalda, well, that would probably have greatly pleased Alfred. So there might have been a little bit of fabrication. But let's put those doubts aside and take the no-smoke-without-fire approach and assume that there was a struggle between the two kingdoms for the purpose of this discussion. Well, in that circumstance, why would Athelbert invade Wessex? To figure that out, we really need to talk about war and what it is. And I think the best way to start is simply by asking questions. So war, what is it? Not what is it good for, but what exactly is war? For example, what is the difference between war and peace? Is it like a light switch where you're either at war or you aren't? Or is it more of a continuum? Is it more subtle? Is it like obscenity where it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it? Do you need to be fighting in order for something to be a war? And how much fighting is enough for a cold war to become hot? Does there need to be a war zone? Can you declare war on a behavior, idea, or feeling? Or do you need a defined group of people in order to have a war? In a war between nations, is the entire nation the enemy, or only the soldiers and leadership? What happens if there's a multinational group that doesn't have a nation? Or how about this? What is a just war, and can it become unjust over time? How do you determine victory in a war? Can you win a war without annihilating the enemy or forcing them to surrender? I could ask these questions all day, and I don't have any answers for you. And I really wonder if anyone has a definitive answer. 
I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a universal definition for war, even within our own culture. But we're using the term interchangeably throughout a variety of cultures and time frames. And yet we approach it like it's a very simple and self-evident idea, regardless of the fact that it's so culturally and time-specific that even in our modern era, we have a hard time saying exactly what war is and isn't. For example, all of the following are described as wars in our current culture. World War II, the war on drugs, the Revolutionary War, the war on terror, and the war on Christmas. And obviously, those were all very different events. Consequently, I don't think we really have a definition that we all attach ourselves to. So I suggest you pause this episode and take a second to think about how you define war, because it will help you root out some biases as we try and wrap our heads around how the Anglo-Saxons might have approached warfare, and if war to them bears any resemblance to how we perceive it now, or how we imagine they carried it out back then. Okay, are you back? Well, curiously, in general, as a culture, we rarely discuss why we go to war and what war is. When you hear warfare episode, you expect a lot of discussions of weaponry, armor, tactics, and probably a sexy action-packed description of the battlefield, much like I did with Boudicca. Basically, we expect Mel Gibson before he went completely nutty. You know, we're expecting William Wallace to scream, Are you ready for a war? With all the Hollywood bombast and flying limbs that you could possibly handle. And that makes war exciting and heroic. And oftentimes, pop culture approaches war like something out of Beowulf or Conan the Barbarian. When we think of ancient war, we think of something like 300 with those painted-on abs and slow-motion lunges as far as the eye can see. And sorry, ladies, most of those abs are entirely makeup. Anyway, it's rare that we approach the question of war in a non-heroic light. Asking what war is and why we do it, well, that's confusing and oftentimes is a bit uncomfortable. But unless we talk about it, how can we put those cool weapons, shield walls, and warrior kings into context? So to start with, now that i filled your head with a bunch of questions, I want you to imagine an Anglo-Saxon war. When I told you of Chalin facing off with Athelbert, what was in your mind's eye? What does it look like? Of course, I want you to think of battlefields, numbers, weapons, tactics, and all the things you'd expect to see in a film about the battle but also try and imagine why they'd fight, how they'd determine who wins, how the soldiers were motivated to fight, and all those other issues that were raised by my barrage of questions, because those are also very important aspects. And now that you've thought about those questions, you might have discarded the rhetorical wars, like the war on junk food, and are thinking about war in terms of World War II, where an enormous chunk of the country is mobilized to a war footing. Well, something to keep in mind is that that's a relatively new phenomenon. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms didn't approach war like that. It was quite different. And that's what I'm getting at with this. The word that we're using is imperfect, and we're just going to have to try and wrap our minds around a new way of thinking about it that's largely divorced from our modern experience. So to get you started in this mind frame, it might be more helpful to think of war during this period as just one part of a continuum of aggression that was more closely tied to the needs of powerful individuals rather than any kind of national effort. There really weren't nations like we think of them, after all. This was a rather personal affair, and it was more like one stop on a whole spectrum of hostility. You might remember from the earlier episodes where we talked about how there was a lot of distrust of the outsider in this area. 
There might have been trade, but from the accounts that we have, it seems like everyone outside of your immediate community was a potential enemy and approached with, well, at least a minor amount of hostility. Yet, at the same time, in general, they weren't walling their towns, not even their trade centers, until Alfred came along and reorganized things. That's strange, isn't it? You have deep distrust, evidence of fights between the populations, yet we're not reading about extensive fortification until Alfred. It doesn't sound like war the way we think of it, does it? Pre-gunpowder warfare usually conjures images of castles and sieges as often as it does battlefields. And since trade was so important, why not protect trade centers in an era of this kind of violence? Well, hopefully by the time I'm done with this, you'll have a better understanding of why these things might have played out like that. So to get this going, at the very basic level, we have to address what the purpose of the battle is. Many people have the temptation to look at Anglo-Saxon warfare and assume it was barbaric, sporadic, and irrational. And I don't want to spoil anything for you. But we should probably look into it rather than just assuming that this was a fight between two primitive kings for some stupid reason. Alright, so why fight? Well, we know that personal conflicts happen. And based upon literary references like Beowulf, we're given the impression that violence was common. At least among the warbands. For example, my favorite part is where one fellow was praised for being a good guy because he doesn't slay his friends while drunk. So that does color our perspective a bit. And it's reinforced by the fact they created a system of ware guilds, which basically translates to man price. And the idea was that you had to pay the family of the victim in the event of a killing. The plan was that this would be much better than letting feuds break out. So you'd kill somebody, you'd pay off the victim, and of course pay the king as well, and then that would be settled and you'd be done. And thus, no more feuds. And you can see how in the absence of a ware guild, feuds might happen, right? For example, I call Russell Crowe tone-deaf. Russell feels that his honor has been impinged and beats me down with a telephone in a fit of drunken rage, as is his custom. Being that I'm delicate, kind of like a flower, this kills me. My family decide that this has gone way too far. His singing was bad enough, but now he's killed the Jeffers. So in a rare show of unity from a family that can't even agree on a pizza topping, Team Jeffers heads out and kills Russell. Well, the Crow family who I think really should be referred to as a murderer of crows. Too far? Anyway, they come after my family to avenge the death of Russell. And then my family goes after theirs to avenge the other death, and so on and so forth. And now you've got a full-blown feud with no end in sight. So the idea of the Ware Guild was to put a stop to that sort of behavior. But it didn't always work out. And it isn't hard to imagine how things could get out of hand rather quickly, especially if the two groups were part of different kingdoms. And as a quick aside, I'm not positive that the Ware Guild was a good idea. I think feuding was actually an effective way to keep people from killing each other. If Cuthbert is a mighty warrior and is irritated by Sigebert, he could probably kill him. But he also knows that his lifespan would shorten substantially when Sigebert's entire family decided to mobilize and get some revenge. So chances are he'd pass on the option to kill Sigebert and instead just get an ulcer. Conversely, if we're in the era of a Ware Guild and Cuthbert has a few spare cattle and nothing better to do with his time, Sigebert might want to watch his back. Anyway, so one assumption is that the outbursts of violence were the result of fairly irrational decisions, personal passions, and a thirst for blood. For example, wars springing out of feuds. But there were actually very rational reasons for going to war in the age of the Heptarchy, which is what we're fast heading into. 
I should point out that I'm not saying that these are reasonable motivations for war, but rather that you have outbreaks of violence due to decisions that were calculated rather than being the result of some king going berserk. Though there probably was some element of f*** me? No, f*** you that was thrown in there as well. And one of these reasons was probably personal safety. As a king, you're expected to have a war band as well as a number of lesser lords serving you. And that's a good thing because you want to keep your head on your shoulders and a king without a war band probably isn't going to do too well. However, this is a gift-giving society and the king is expected to bring prosperity to his people and especially his war band. That group of psychopathic killers that you keep close to you at all times probably does provide a certain measure of confidence in your rule until you stop paying them. After all, honor and rings aside, your job as a giver of rings was to bring these men riches, goodies, and the like. If you aren't upholding your end of the bargain, will they really uphold theirs? You can't be sure, can you? So you need to make sure that you keep paying these guys. So how do you get all those wonderful bits of jewelry, weaponry, and armor that are necessary to keep your warriors loyal? Well, one way is trade. And we know that, especially in the South, there was a good amount of trade going on. So if you had control of some major centers of trade, you could probably provide for the men in that way. But what if you didn't? Or what if you had a bad harvest? Or maybe your trade center was lost? Or what if you offended your trading partners and lost access to that route? There are any number of reasons why you might not have access to wealth. So in that circumstance, what do you do? Well, there's always war. If you invaded a neighbor, you could either gain riches by defeating your enemy, or the opposing king might just give you a tribute to go away. And that would help demonstrate to the warband that you were a good and powerful king, since you were out there winning fights against your enemies, or at least scaring the bejesus out of your enemies. Either way, that might keep your men loyal. For now. Another entirely rational reason would be to keep your subjects loyal and bring them permanently under your umbrella. Like we've been speaking about, this was an incredibly fluid period in British history. Just because your family held the reins of power didn't mean that they continued to do so, and any number of your so-called allies, those who are theoretically subordinate to you, might decide that they could do a better job and try and usurp the kingdom. So how do you head that off at the pass? Well, one way is to present them with an external threat to unify against. So long as they're focused on another kingdom, they aren't looking at you and licking their lips like lionesses on the savannah. And this has the added effect of reinforcing your command over your subordinates, like your thanes and such. I mean, you're acting as a unit, so over time, they might start to think of themselves as part of the kingdom rather than individual territories within the kingdom. And this could have been particularly useful for bringing sub-kings into the fold. And again... That's an entirely rational reason to go to war. Then you have just straight up resource issues. Your kingdom has a bad harvest and you know that if your people start to go hungry, especially if that ruthless war band of yours starts to go hungry, you're probably going to find yourself in a bit of trouble. Well, in that case, heading out to gain tribute or just outright seizure of food stocks through raiding from your neighbors might be in your interest. And this is all without getting into the tactical and political reasons for war, taking villages that are strategically significant or provide resources that you need, or any number of other political reasons could account for why you'd want to go to war. Honestly, there are plenty of reasons to fight that are surprisingly rational. I'm not saying they're good, but there are rational reasons out there beyond Cuthbert. I've had enough. It's on. 
So Athelbert could well have had a good reason to invade Wessex. Given that Kent was doing pretty well on trade, I doubt it had anything to do with economics, and it was probably more political in nature. If the dates are right, he was a young king, and he might have wanted to secure his place and demonstrate that his family did have the right to rule. They also could have been fighting over lands in Sussex, or tussling over a trade center, or something along those lines. Or maybe, given the great strides that Wessex was making, Athelbert wanted to secure his kingdom and check the power of Wessex. Or maybe his union with Francia gave him the impression that he should be the overlord of all the kingdoms south of the Humber, and decided to give that a whirl. There are all sorts of reasons why this battle might have happened. But what we know is that it didn't work out, and two Kentish eldermen were killed, and then Athelbert had to flee back to Kent. And that raises a question, doesn't it? How did the men of Wessex deal with the victory? Did they let the army in whole leg it back to Kent? I mean, we're told that they were chased back to Kent. So what happened there? If they were chasing them, what did they do with the people that they caught? Did they take prisoners? And if so, how did they deal with those prisoners of war? Did they turn them into slaves? I mean, it's hard to imagine because we haven't found any obvious slave chains or slave accommodations. And we are still largely talking about farming communities. It seems like prisoners of war would be a liability, and even slaves would be a bit of a pain in the butt. But let's imagine that they did take prisoners. What would they do with them? I mean, I suppose he could skip the issue of prisoners and just kill everyone he captured, which would be cheap and would effectively remove the threat they pose. But that seems like a waste. If you wanted to increase your income but didn't want to deal with the trouble of keeping slaves, you could probably sell the prisoners overseas, which would remove the threat since they couldn't easily get back, and you'd also make a profit. But you'd need a proper trade connection to do that, and you'd need somewhere to house the prisoners until the slave trader came to port. And that wouldn't be easy, and actually, it could be rather dangerous. So what else could you do? Well, you could ritually sacrifice them. And while we don't know a tremendous amount about the growing religious culture in what would become England, we do have reports from the continent that the Saxons had no problem killing captives, and taking slaves for that matter. And in fact, we're told that they would kill some of their captives prior to setting sail in order to ensure a safe voyage, like you do. And we've already spoken about how parts of Germanic culture have mixed in with the local culture, creating new ones in the various regions of England. And that's important because there are examples of Germanic cultures like the Cimbri that engaged in ritual sacrifice. And some of those cultures worshipped Nordic gods, like we believe many of the Anglo-Saxons did. And if Beowulf reflects Anglo-Saxon tradition, hanging from a tree could well have been the way that they dealt with this sacrifice. And we have evidence that the Anglo-Saxons used hanging as punishment in later ages. And actually, many Danes suffered this fate. So granted, we're splicing a lot of different things into a single coherent story here, but maybe that part of Germanic culture had mixed in with England, and following the battle, the limbs of the trees became rather, how to put this, decorated. Can you imagine it? The trees bordering the battlefield with their limbs sagging under the weight of the bodies as the victorious army marches back to their homes, confident that the gods are watching over them. And right now, you're probably balking and thinking, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, killing a foe in battle is one thing, but hanging someone you captured? Come on. But you have to take yourself out of our culture and realize that this is an entirely different culture with different values and beliefs. 
Sure, a lot of this stuff can be familiar, and we can see how these people would eventually become the modern nation we've come to know. But they're still quite different in a number of ways. For example, we think about ritual sacrifice as murder. It seems selfish, pointless, ruthless, and downright creepy. But think about it in terms of religious fervor and belief. If this happened, it probably wasn't selfish. And it probably wasn't about the captured prisoner either. In what little records we have of ritual sacrifice, it seems like this was something that was done for the good of the community. I mean, think about it. You're getting the favor of the gods. If it happened, this probably would have been seen as a rather good thing rather than a cold and ruthless act. But ultimately, it's hard to know what was done with the people on the losing side. They might have just been let go. And there are some elements of Anglo-Saxon warfare that we're going to get to that give me the impression that these fights were ritualized and oddly chivalric in some ways. So it might have come with some element of quarter being given. But just because the war seems slightly chivalric doesn't mean that sacrifices couldn't have happened. The two concepts aren't mutually exclusive. And like I mentioned earlier, there were continental references to the Saxons sacrificing people. Something else to keep in mind is that the writers recording Chalon's victory were Christian. And England had long been converted. And we're talking about a source that is glorifying the House of Wessex. So they weren't likely to cap off the victory with, and then he sacrificed a bunch of prisoners to his pagan gods. I think they'd leave that part out. Honestly, though, it's just one of those dark areas that we're going to have to say, we don't know, but it might have gone either way. But anyway, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Before you get to the issue of dealing with prisoners, you need to talk about how you get those prisoners. You need to talk about how you win. So what do you think? How's a battle won? Some of you might be answering with something along the lines of, well, that's obvious. You militarily overcome your enemy and put an end to its ability to fight, or at least its willingness to fight. And that certainly is one objective. But I don't think you can say that's always the point. And knowing the purpose of a fight is quite important because it can determine how the battle plays out. For example, if, instead of overcoming the enemy, we're talking about heroic combat, we might be looking at a short battle and then whoever loses retreats or makes concessions or something along those lines. But if the point is to overcome your enemy, and let's say that you're engaged in a defensive war, the battle might be more focused upon crushing your opponent's ability to fight, which could mean annihilating your foe. And that's very different. So right off the bat, the objective of the battle could have been one of the factors that would determine how Chalin would react to Athelbert's invasion. If the goal was to overcome, after pushing Athelbert from Wessex, he might have been tempted to cross into Kent and throw some elbows assuming that his men were willing to do so, which is something we'll get into later. But we don't have any record that he did that. So, was this more of a heroic combat situation, where the act of winning would have been enough to settle the matter? I mean, maybe forced concessions, which demonstrated the rightness of his rule, both to his people and to the men of Kent. But on the other hand... Maybe it was something similar to overcoming. I mean, he did kill two Elderman, so maybe that was sufficient to disrupt Kent's ability to attack Wessex, and also might have discouraged any future attacks. At this point, I don't think we're going to have any clear answers on what the objectives of the battle were. But we are going to get more into it as we continue. And next time, we're going to talk about how these leaders got men to fight for them, how those armies were equipped and trained, how they fought, and the fallout of the fighting and more. It should be fun. 
As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash British History, and we're just shy of 4,000 likes on Facebook. Just saying. And it's not just Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter. Just look for at British Podcast. And fun fact there, we're just shy of 1,000 followers on Twitter. And as always, you can also join us on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums, and we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>